so, um, <clears throat> so the cross. Know all about that, don't we? It's not that you gave your life to Christ, but he gave his life for you. I saw it on Twitter this week. Somebody put that up, a quote from Scotty Ward-Smith, and I thought, ooh. Now, I knew that. Do you know what I mean? But it was fresh. It's not that you gave your life to Christ. You know, we were wrong to emphasize that so much. What I've done to give my life to Christ. He gave his life for me, and that's magnetic. It, it, it exerts a pull. Does that make sense? And the cross, well, Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. There's the key to it. That's how it goes. It's God's living word we come to, and it comes to us fresh, because the God who speaks in it is a living God, and yet we're handling familiar things. So let's be careful. Well, here's the introduction to our passage in Mark 15:16, following today. Um, and we'll be going up to verse 41. 15, 16 to 41. The soldiers led Jesus away. He's been condemned now in front of Pilate. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. The suggestion is they put a stick in his hand like a royal ruling stick, a scepter thing, um, in, the, in the way of the time. And they spat on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage, mock homage, to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him on that back that had been whipped, flayed. Mark is underlining the depth of Jesus' suffering for us. He was stripped and fiercely flogged publicly in verse 15. And then he's taken privately out of public view in verse 16 amongst a large group of violent men who could do anything they liked to him. He had no rights anymore. He was a condemned man. He was a dead man walking as far as they were concerned. He'd already been flogged so severely that when the time came he was unable to carry the cross to his crucifixion. It's only the beam yet to carry. Couldn't carry it very far at all. Verse 21 makes that clear to us. So he has been physically humiliated and degraded. And now in the praetorium with these soldiers, being psychologically humiliated and degraded, taken apart, despised, having been rejected. A very, very sorry picture for one who is known as the king of the Jews. King over the kingdom of God. Here he is, the evening's entertainment for a brutalized band of men. And in their hands he is physically helpless. And they're free to do anything they want to him, so long as tomorrow they take him out and torture him to his death. certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. 
There was this traditional obligation throughout the Roman Empire that legionaries could press gang passers-by from amongst the subject peoples to carry their baggage a short way. That's what underlies what Jesus says about if someone makes you go one mile, go the second mile. So someone is chosen, chosen as the hugely weakened Jesus stumbles and falters along the way to the place of the skull. Cyrene is his origin. Simon is his name. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why are we being told this? Why are we told the man's name? Why are we moreover told his children's names? Obviously they're people intended to be recognised by Mark's readers. They're named in the way other believers known to the readers of the Gospels and the Epistles are named. We don't hear of them again. It seems likely at some point what's happened is they've become known to the Christian community. They're known amongst the Christian community. What's happened is this guy who has carried this crossbeam for Jesus, maybe he's stuck around, we don't know. But certainly come the day of Pentecost there's this big authentication of this Jesus. And it looks as if they've believed and become known to the church. So they brought Jesus to a place. They brought Jesus to a place, verse 22, the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. That word brought is not really a good translation of the word that's used. It's a very physical word. They almost have to drag him there. Not because he's unwilling. We've seen that he's very unwilling. He's determined to see this through. They've got to drag him there because having been flayed to within an inch of his life, they have to pursue him. His legs won't carry him there anymore. One each side, they have to drag him away. To a flat place is the word that's used for place there. A flat place called Golgotha. That's awkward if we're used to Gordon's Calvary, isn't it? Um, just means a place level piece of ground, it could be on a hill, we don't know. But it's outside the city to stop the Jews kicking off about their purity laws, and we know very well what gruesomeness habitually went on at this place. It's the place of the skull. And verse 33, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. There was a tradition, it's in the Mishnah, it's recorded later on, of the pious women of Jerusalem seeing these poor guys being handled in this way by the authorities to take wine mix it with a grain of frankincense and then it becomes a crude narcotic, a painkiller just to try and ease their way and here it says they used myrrh which is, is not frankincense described in the Mishnah but, but we've got a record from an army physician Dioscorides mm. Dioscorides it's time for your tea, who gave him that name um <laughs> But he's got this weird name. He's, a, he's an army physician. He knows about pain, right? And he writes in the first century AD, so it's contemporary with this, about using myrrh as a narcotic to kill the pain. So it looks like this is what's going on. In any event, Jesus is determined to drink the cup of suffering to the dregs, and he won't have the painkiller. Now it may be, he's, you know, at the Last Supper, he said he wouldn't drink again from the fruit of the vine until he drank it afresh in the kingdom of God. And perhaps this offering of wine for the pain is what he foresaw when he pledged that back then. Perhaps that was, that's what that's about at the Last Supper. But certainly here is the physical weakness of Jesus now. 
Here is the outside the camp defilement of the death that he's about to die. And here's his determination. Determination to drink fully to the dregs the cup of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty in the place of lost sinners like you and me that I might not bear my sin's penalty. So here's what he did. But we're looking out for what Mark wants to tell us about what he did. Right? Mark has got a pastoral purpose in writing this letter. He's writing it for Christians in Rome. What's his purpose? Here it comes. The death of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and they crucified him, says Mark. Now, he, he says nothing else. He's told us all this detail about the physical sufferings of the Messiah up until this point. He tells us nothing more about the execution than that in Mark's Gospel. Why is this? Mark, really violently in the text, he, he shifts the emphasis suddenly onto something else. Onto three time markers. And he's got these three hours spaced time markers. Three of them, three hours apart. It's weird. It's, when you read it, you think, whoa, what's that about? Now, it's not quite that simple, because first of all, Mark points to what the soldiers did with Jesus' clothes. And they crucified him. No more detail. Except this, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And, and Mark is putting in a thumb pin on, on the map of Jesus' experience that day. He's putting in a, a point there and he says, remember Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 predicts this casting lots for Jesus' clothing. And Psalm 22 says this from verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. He's just been pushed from pillar to post in the praetorium. And now he's been dragged by them to the cross. Roaring lions that tear their prey. They flayed his back. Open their mouths wide against me. We're going to see that in a minute. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. We don't need to go through the description of what happens to a person who's crucified when the weight comes on their body as they pulls their, pulls their joints. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot surd. He's had this terrific blood loss. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Lie him down, nail him to a cross, hoist him up. Dogs surround me. Teasing him, uh, mocking him. A pack of villains encircles me. Who's he crucified with? They pierce my hands and my feet. Psalm 22 written a very long time before the Persians invented this means of executing a man. Mm. And all my bones are on display. Mm. They strip him and nail him and his bones are out because he's just hanging. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. The last thing I had on earth. And they cast lots for my garment. Peter behind Mark is putting in a pin. He's saying, Psalm 22. 
and then he gets to this three time markers. That three hour period beginning at 9am is marked by mockery and insult. Despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. Isaiah 53, prediction of this. The emphasis is falling on these bits. These headings under which we're supposed to view the crucifixion. First of all, despised then. I've got three Ds, sorry about that. Three Ds, despised. Here comes this fulfilment of prophecy. He is numbered with the transgressors. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Nine in the morning when they crucified him, written notice, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left, numbered amongst the transgressors. And those who passed by hurled insults at him. And they shook their heads and they said, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. What was he doing on the cross? He was destroying a bricks and mortar temple. And he was going to build a new temple for the Spirit of God by rising from the dead in three days and sending his Spirit at Pentecost. Because the people of God were going to become the temple in which he lived. How ironic is the mockery? Astonishing, isn't it? Despised. Rejected by everyone. Pilate rejected him as king of the Jews. Placarded Roman mockery of Christ's claim. There's this thing on the top of the cross that says king of the Jews. Or maybe it was on the top of the cross. It was somewhere there. And then secondly, passers-by hurled insults. Those who pass by. From Psalm 22. And then thirdly, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. Oh, they did it amongst themselves. They were far too pious to join the rabble and shout at him. He saved others, they said. Can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And if he comes down from the cross, they'll never know what they need to see and believe to be saved. Because his death and resurrection won't be there as the object of saving faith. And then those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Fourthly, Pilate passes by chief priests and the teachers of the law and the two violent brigands, terrorists, freedom fighters, whatever they were, dying in agonies beside him for their own sins joined in the abuse. Now, mercifully, we know from other Gospels there's another story to tell about one of them. But at this point, everybody despises and rejects the Saviour. And of course, their mockery he can't do because if, if he does what they say coming down from the cross, they never know what to believe to be saved. The first three time of the three time markers, the first of the three time periods, despised. The second, beginning at noon, is characterized by three hours of darkness. Verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this theory, but there's no way on earth, there's no way in heaven, it can be a solar eclipse, right? There's no way, because it's Passover time and the moon's in the wrong place. It cannot be. 
This is a supernatural intervention by God causing an unnatural darkness in creation as its creator dies. It's got to be. Just just so we're clear on that, you know, copies of this gospel were circulating within the lifetime of people who were around at the time. And it's saying this. And if if it weren't true, there were plenty of people in, in Jerusalem who would know. So Jesus is the creator. And the creation has this awful darkness upon it as its creator dies. John 1, 3, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. He's the creator God. And he's hanging on the cross and creation goes, whoa, darkness. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whatever they are. He is before all things. In him all things hold together, and darkness reflects the horror of what humanity is doing to him. Thirdly, at 3 p.m., dereliction. Despised, see, I thought of these D's after I made my slides. (laughs) Despised, darkness, dereliction. Verse 34. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, this Aramaic, which poor Helen got to read. (laughs) Eloi, Eloi, lemasabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. We are not given the answer to the question. Mm. Why? Because Mark's readers knew full well there's only one thing that leaves a man derelict of God. And it's sin. There is only one thing that separates the creator God from his human creation. Only sin can do that. And Mark has gone out of his way through this gospel, we've seen in previous weeks, and particularly through the mock trials, to show that Jesus is utterly innocent of all accusation. Mm. Those people that Mark is writing for, they know perfectly well that the sin separating Jesus from his father is definitely not his but it's ours as Andrew Price puts it in his little book an innocent man is dying in the place of guilty sinners so Mark's emphasis in his account of the crucifixion is clearly not on the physical suffering of the saviour but rests securely on his sin atoning death despised darkness as creation is appalled dereliction as human sin is poured on the sinless saviour so that sinful human beings can have the sinless record of Christ in heaven's account and that explains the first of the testimonies there are are three time markers and then there are three testimonies to what those time markers tell us Does, does that make sense? Three witnesses, if you like, 
to the three things that the, that the time markers have stressed about Christ's sin atoning death. And these three testimonies indicate that authenticity of Jesus' sin atoning work on that day. It's the sin thing. It's the, it's the transference of guilt and the transference of righteousness. My sin to him, my guilt unto him, and his righteousness unto me. And the testimonies hail, hail that and, and support all that. First testimony to all of this is that veil in the temple. Because I think, I think again Helen read this bit. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not that the earth shook and there was an earthquake and it was torn from the ground up, but that there was a sin atoning death and heaven shook and the curtain was torn from top to bottom. What about this veil? Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, you can see this diagram I've managed to uh, hash up for you uh, of the internal works of the temple. Uh, if not, get the slides on SlideShare and it'll be on there and you'll be able to see it on your laptop later on, slideshare.net. Uh, you come in, come up the steps into the actual inner sanctum of the temple and then there's this vestibule <clears throat> and then there's the holy place and then there's the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the atonement cover was and, and where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's um, geographical presence, if you like, was most intensely symbolised in Israel. Now there's this consciousness. You remember Uzzah and the Ark. When the Ark rocked and they reached out their hand and touched it, the, 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 the focus of the geographical presence of God on earth is dangerous for sinful human beings. That's there in their consciousness. So there's this dirty great veil made of layers and layers of cloth that separates the dangerous presence of God for sinners from sinful human beings and that curtain in the temple as Christ dies is torn from top to bottom as the presence of God is opened to sinful human beings by his death the minute Jesus has died the temple curtain is torn from the top to the bottom and the kingdom of God is, is here and either your sin is now atoned for by his blood opening the presence of God up to you or your sin is exposed opening you to the consequences of not being protected anymore from the dangerous presence of the holy God you know, Jesus said right at the beginning didn't you? the kingdom of God is at hand it's a serious guys because that's here you need to repent and believe the gospel Curtain's gone because Christ has died. The intimacy with God lost at the fall is now open to saved sinners. But for lost sinners, this makes that message of Mark 1.15 all the more urgent. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. It's urgent. It's urgent. This is why we need to be a missional community of the people of God. This is why we need to be disciple-making disciples. Because the veil's gone. <clears throat> now, just, uh, just in apologetic terms, you know, um, this gospel is circulating again within the lifetime of the people who, who, who were the eyewitnesses of these things. We know that after the day of Pentecost, you know, a good number of the priests believed wouldn't you? 
Well, you would if the Spirit of God came on you, I suppose. That's right anyway, isn't it? You wouldn't if you didn't. So that's a stupid comment. But you know jolly well what's happened to that curtain at the temple. It's gone. You know, they've got, they got the old Levites in there quick, but their needles sewing him up, no doubt. I don't know. Don't tell anybody. The curtain's been ripped. Um, this is for real? There's the first witness. The ante has been upped. The veil's gone. Second testimony to Jesus is, I'd say, as powerful. In my, in my way of thinking, I don't know, it's a matter of opinion, isn't it? There is the centurion, verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now what's going on? Here is the guy who's charged under Roman law with making sure that his execution detail kill this guy. Here's a guy who's seen a lot of people die and has done it to him. To be a centurion, you've worked your way up through the ranks to get there. You've been a trained killer and you've been there for some time. You've, you've served your time in the business. He's used to killing men. And he's brutalised to the extent that he can take a guy and nail through his flesh to a beam. And Okay, you've got the picture, right? Leave it there. And that guy stood in front of Jesus, because he's responsible to make sure these guys are gone. And when he saw how Jesus died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the first person in the whole Gospel to understand Mark chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> what does it say? The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yep, there's been all that proof from chapter 138 whatever it is where Jesus has declared who he is, declared the kingdom of God has come and he's the king who's come in his kingdom and he's shown it, he's, he's cast out demons, healed the sick he's shown his authority over the natural creation, the spiritual creation and even over human beings and, and that, that's been going on all the way through to, to the point of chapter 8 verse 28 where Jesus says to the disciples who do you say I am and Peter says well you're the Messiah but Peter still hasn't got this until that centurion who knows death and execution standing there sees the way that Jesus dies and he says, I've got it. This man was the Son of God. God the Father had announced who he was back in chapter 1 verse 11. Mark declared it at the beginning. Mark 1 11, God the Father at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The forces of darkness soon recognised Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 34. Jesus wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he was. Mm. Mm. But now as Jesus dies, the first human being calls Jesus the Son of God, which is, which is what he was announced as at the start of the Gospel. And it's the Roman centurion. How relevant do you think that is for those persecuted believers in Rome who were going through this stuff themselves at that time? at the hands of guys like this. Mm. And to this day we hear of ISIS executioners in Syria coming to faith in Christ as our brothers and sisters are killed at their hands. Our God is an awesome God. Here's Mark's emphasis then. 
He is the eternal Son of God, dying for the sins of the world. And Mark writes for us to be sure to worship Jesus, Saviour, Son of God. God the Son. And now we've had uh, the veil as a witness, we've had the centurion as a witness, and now here are the disciples who witnessed all of this and can testify to you. Here are people you know who will tell you it's true, Mark says to those people in Rome. Gathered around that cross, seeing it through with the Saviour, and he names a bunch of women. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And in Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Where are the guys? The guys are there. We know the guys are there. (laughs) There's a point where Jesus, from the cross, goes to John, his best of all friends, and he says... Son, your mother, mother, your son. He provides for his mother as he hangs there. We know the guys are there. We know men stood around Christ's cross as he died too. So why is Mark all over this with women? Tremendous courage is going to be shown next by a man called Joseph of Arimathea. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's really sticking his neck out. And he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Now Mark's stressing the ladies. We know that Nicodemus is going to go with, with, with um, Joseph of Arimathea. And that shows immense courage too. There were brave guys standing around Jesus too. So why is it Mark stresses all these women? It's odd. Because within Judaism... The testimony of women is not valid. But things are clearly different in the kingdom of God. That's what's going on here, isn't it? Here is your testimony. The old ways are gone by. The kingdom of God is a new place to express your spirituality. And it's different here. What are we getting told? Unlike the Old Testament way, the way of Jesus is for Jews, is for brigands, is for Romans, is for women in ways that the old way wasn't. And that's a very, very, it's hard for us to acknowledge this and to see the size of it and the scale of it because we live in different times, right? That is huge. The universality of the kingdom of God now. The kingdom of God has now come. Those things that were thought to be utterly anathema till now have gone. But his sin atoning death, and by his sin atoning death, the game has been changed. And the curtain is torn for everyone now. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. See, I I know about the cross. I could do a Sunday school class on the cross like that, couldn't you? Somebody asked me the detail, I can tell them, yeah, it was like this. But 
God's word is a truly living word and, and there's stuff fresh to learn every day. I mean, I've been preaching it since I was 17 and it's been a privilege to, to hear it from some skilled, qualified people and from some godly people too. They've taught it to me in its ways. But it's just staggering to me how much is new in God's word every day. It's a living word because it's the word of the living God and he gets involved with it all the time. But this much is constant and this much is unchanging. In this account, Christ's physical human weakness, his abasement in death, his embracing the awful human condition is complete for me. His death laid down a spotless life in a sinner's demise. It was substitution, it was atonement, it was salvation for people who deserved the death, not the spotless record. And it opened up the presence of God to every man, not just every man, Jew and Gentile, but every woman, woman, those women who followed him faithfully with servant hearts from Galilee. And the facts of that event are well witnessed beyond dispute. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is the king, God the son. His life and death have atoned for my sin in God's sight. Heaven's door is kicked back. And entrance into his presence is thrown wide. So the Saviour's command is now very urgent. Repent and believe the good news. Let that urgency affect its pull on my heart. Day by day.